Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing okay. Yeah. Can you elaborate? <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, like, I could be doing better because, well, just things could be going better. But I'm not feeling super down or, you know, despondent about anything. Uh, nothing terribly wrong has happened. So I'm just sort of, you know, okay. Yeah. Yeah. How are you? Same. <laughs> I am excited for tonight's movie, though. Yeah. Uh, because it is the second sequel of a Frankenstein movie that we have seen. You have a puzzled look. Am I overlooking something? I guess I'm confused by what you mean. Well, because there was Bride of Frankenstein ah. and this is Revenge of Frankenstein. Ah, got it, got it, got so it. This is the second time you're seeing a sequel to Frankenstein. Got it, got it. This is the second Frankenstein 2 that we've seen, essentially. Yeah. Got it. Okay, sorry, yes. Sorry, I, I, I should have drawn a map to my sentence. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that that's fine. Um, yes, today we are watching The Revenge of Frankenstein from 1958, directed by Terrence Fisher. And weirdly enough, I almost missed this movie. Somehow, it like nearly slipped through the cracks, you know, not on purpose. Like I knew this movie existed, but on my sort of master plan of, you know, what movies we're covering and what episodes and when, I didn't have this one up there because... You thought it was later. Um, No, I just like didn't have it. Um, I mean, I did think it was later. I did not realize it was like so soon but i also just like didn't have it on my plan for 1958 or 1959 because the sources that i tend to use on a very high level basis for figuring out like what horror movies came out in a given year didn't have it um sources like if i was looking at a list of like hammer films absolutely would would be listing it but yeah i just kind of missed it basically. And I was very happy that I caught it in time so that we're watching it like at the right point in time. Very glad that I didn't miss it. That would have been embarrassing. (laughs) Um, But yes, this is the sequel to Hammer's Curse of Frankenstein, which was like a huge movie. It was. It made a huge splash. It made a huge box office return and i think for like the overall genre it was highly influential yeah absolutely so for the benefit of our listeners who haven't heard our curse of frankenstein episode why don't you tell us a bit about that film if folks want to go listen back that's episode 209 and curse of frankenstein came out in 1957 which seems way too soon you know what I mean? Yeah, and yet was like, what, 30 episodes ago? Yeah, about. Yeah. So Hammer Films at the time, in 1957, if we cast our minds back, they were seeing continued success of their X-rated horror movies that they had done with like the Quatermass series. So they're like, well, let's keep doing that. 
The adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was suggested from producer Max Rosenberg and writer Milton Subotsky. So they brought this idea to Hammer producer Michael Carreras, who was like, yes, and I have this totally different idea. What um, Subotsky and Rosenberg wanted to do was definitely more like, I'll say traditional, like more like the universal style Mm. of a horror movie. Carreras wanted to do something different. He wanted a different direction. So this different direction included more of a focus on Frankenstein himself. Um, He wanted Eastman color to really jazz up what he's doing here and a totally unique monster design. To accomplish this, Carreras brought in Jimmy Singster, um, who had proven himself at Hammer as a writer with the Quatermass series. To direct, Terrence Fisher came on. Um, He had started at Hammer in 1951, so he's like, you know, proven himself time and again. So this is a reliable person that they're bringing on. And Fisher brought on cinematographer Jack Asher. And together they cultivated a vision of a bold theatrical style that would fully take advantage of that Eastman color that we see. And that theatrical style would also take inspiration from Gothic visuals. At this time, Peter Cushing was a well-known TV actor, so he was brought on for Curse of Frankenstein, and after this, he becomes like a Hammer regular. Christopher Lee was chosen because of his high stature and low pay, (laughs) but he also proves himself with this film and then with uh, Dracula, or should I say Horror of Dracula, just to be specific. Either are correct. Okay. (laughs) In the film, Elizabeth is played by Hazel Court. This is the, that was the first of many horror appearances by her. And in the film, Frankenstein has a friend named Paul Crump, and he was played by Robert Urquhart, uh, which I believe, if I recall correctly, you said he was so disgusted with the final picture, he's like, never again. Yeah. Never doing a horror, never working with Hammer ever yeah, again. Yeah. So I presume he does not return for revenge. No, no, <laughs> he does not. Even though you would think that he would be the person Frankenstein would want revenge on. Yes. Mm. But maybe he wants revenge on society. Mm. Makeup was provided by Philip Leakey. Now, for various different reasons, they weren't able to do latex or molds. So the night before they started shooting, they put together a look using more traditional methods, uh, which consisted of um, a look that's like a, a walking corpse, where Lee would have what looks like stitches, gray skin, kind of folded skin, and different colored eyes. As we alluded, it was a box office hit, both in the UK and in the U- in the US, initiating and reinvigorating gothic horror in film, particularly in horror. Yeah, it was just like that subgenre had kind of died away and been, you know, replaced so much by sci-fi horror in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, boom, we're back, baby. <laughs> The Curse of Frankenstein uh, made $8 million worldwide, which was about 30 times its budget, and it is currently ranked on the Scream Scene list at number 38. Pretty good. So I know that you said that this is a sequel, and when we teased it last week, I was like, but didn't Frankenstein die? Mm-hmm. Turns out he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll tell you the synopsis of the first movie and kind of explain like how they kind of lead into this one. Right. 
in The Curse of Frankenstein, we are set in a Victorian-era Switzerland, and we see that a Baron Victor von Frankenstein has been tried and convicted of murdering his maid, Justine. He's going to be sent to the guillotine, so he calls for a priest to hear his story with the hope that the priest will believe him and then appeal to the authorities and get him off the hook. Now, Victor shares how, as a little boy, his father died and left him the entire estate, and he began working with a tutor named Paul Krimp to, um, you know, learn the ways of the world, but specifically learn about science. After two years, they've become a bit more like colleagues rather than a tutor-student relationship, and they successfully bring a puppy back to life. But Victor wants to go further. He wants to create life, not just bring it back. So... Paul decides, like, okay, I'm going to duck out. I'm going to peace out. Um, But Victor has a betrothed fiancé, Elizabeth, who is now staying at the estate. And so Paul's like, well, I can't leave because Elizabeth is here. We see Victor gathering the body parts, including a brain from a leading scientist who happens to die accidentally (laughs) at the estate. Um, Paul puts two and two together and goes to like stop Victor and they have a fight which leads to the brain being damaged and therefore when the creature is brought back to life he is violent and mute. They end up killing the creature after he gets loose and like kills some people uh, using a a shotgun to the face Um, and Paul's like great things are finished and Victor's like yes and he brings the creature back to life. Now, Justine is the maid, and Victor has been having an affair with her, and Justine's like, well, I'm going to tell Elizabeth everything unless you actually marry me. So she gets killed by way of the creature. Um, So I suppose it's like murder by, it's like vehicular manslaughter, only it's like creature manslaughter. It's, It's murder by proxy. Yeah. Like, Victor's all like, I didn't kill Justine, and it's like, okay. But you locked her in the room with your creature. Yeah, like if I took you and threw you into a pool of ravenous sharks, like, okay, yes, the sharks killed you, but like, come on here. Who's legally responsible? It is the evening before Victor and Elizabeth's wedding. Paul comes and he discovers that the creature is alive. The creature actually gets loose on the roof and um, in the confrontation, Victor goes to shoot the creature and um, shoots Elizabeth in the shoulder, but the creature is vanquished. Now, what's important here is that Elizabeth never really got a good look at the creature and definitely never knew his origins. The only people who know what the creature is, is Paul and Victor. So once Victor finishes telling this story to the priest, he's very skeptical. Paul arrives and Victor's like, Paul, you can corroborate. And Paul's like, no. So then Victor gets taken to the guillotine. And what's important is that while the final shot shows the guillotine's blade being risen, we do not see it fall. This is true. This is true. I checked this earlier today. Yeah, Paul, like, sells Victor out and ends up with Elizabeth. Yes, that's true. At the end of the movie, like, like sells him out to steal his girlfriend and so you would really think that the two of them would be in this movie, The Revenge of Frankenstein, uh, but they are not. Okay. So, you know, that raises the question of who Victor's getting revenge on here. We'll see how accurately titled this movie is, since, you know, Bride of Frankenstein is only accurately titled if it's 
referring to a character who most people don't think of when they think of the bride, or if you're thinking of her as the bride of Frankenstein in the same way that like a sandwich I made was the sandwich of Ben, you know? Yeah. Uh, So Frankenstein movies do have a a history of sort of wonky titling. Um, And I think you'll find out why that is the case in this movie soon enough. But um, Victor does return. Peter Cushing is back. Um, He has been a busy guy. Yes. Uh, Curse of Frankenstein started shooting in November of 1956. And then immediately afterwards, Abominable Snowman started shooting in January of 1957. Curse of Frankenstein came out in May of 57. Abominable Snowman came out in August of 57. Horror of Dracula uh, began shooting in November of 57 and would come out in May of 58. Then, um, like, after Horror of Dracula was another big, huge smash hit for Hammer, um, three days after Dracula finished shooting, they began shooting Revenge of Frankenstein on January 6th, 1958. So he's just back to back. Yes. Yeah, he's just just been doing these Hammer films, like, immediately back to back. I'm sure he's, like, happy to have the work. Yes. But he's not, like, a young, spry guy at this point, right? Like, he's, like, in his 40s? Yeah, he's, like, 45. Yeah, so (laughs) he's not a young, spry kid, you know? No, but Peter Cushing was definitely one of those guys with, like, that Protestant work ethic when it came to acting. Like he was a guy who would like, you know, you offered him work, he took it Okay. because like he had to be working because he needed to like provide for, you know, his family and all that kind of stuff. Right. But yeah, the success of Curse of Frankenstein had been immense. And, you know, because of the way worldwide release schedules worked back in those days, like movies didn't open everywhere worldwide on the same day back then by the time horror of dracula was finished shooting in late 1957 you know there would have now been time to see curse frankenstein like bounce around a few different countries and have that success because it had come out in may of 57 right um and so a sequel kind of became an inevitability um even though writer jimmy sangster and producer anthony hines were very confident that they had cut off all possibility of a sequel when they had cut off the Baron's head at the end of the first <laughs> movie. But uh, Hammer's co-founder, James Carreras, had pre-sold a sequel under the title The Revenge of Frankenstein to Columbia Pictures in America. So Carreras comes to Sangster and asks him to write the sequel, which has to have the title Revenge of Frankenstein. And Sangster responded that they'd cut Frankenstein's head off in the first movie. And Carreras said, then sew it back on again and (laughs) told Sangster that he had six weeks to write the script and he'd think of something. So, I mean, this is a movie about bringing dead people back to life. (laughs) Come on. So Sangster's screenplay for this film established the formula that would distinguish Hammer's Frankenstein series from Universal's. So the old Frankenstein series had been about the same monster being brought back by like a succession of Frankenstein relatives. However, Hammer's Frankenstein series would cast Victor as the lead, creating a new creature in each film. 
Interesting. Okay. So that means Mr. Lee does not return? Correct. Aw, okay. Now, this decision led to sort of a recharacterization of Victor. Um, in the first film, he's a right thorough bastard. Like, that's the that's point. That's the point. Yeah, the point is like... He's an upper class guy who is very arrogant. Yeah, he, he acts with that aristocratic sense of not knowing consequences for his actions. He can just get away with anything because he's the Baron. And so he's very entitled. The decision to make him a recurring protagonist sort of necessitated a shift towards making him like a persecuted anti-hero. Okay. Yeah, because like we need to want to spend time with him now, movie after movie. That's fair. So if you keep him as just like this awful guy who does nothing but awful things, like that becomes very difficult. Um, so yeah, there became this sense in the sequels of like, the problem is society's fault for not being ready for like Victor's advanced scientific medical like techniques. Um, so it is revenge against society. I guess. Amazing. So behind the camera, most of the Curse of Frankenstein team was reassembled. Uh, Terrence Fisher once again is directing coming, you know, right off of the set of Dracula, which he had done after Curse of Frankenstein in press interviews for this film. Fisher said, it's no good having your tongue in cheek when you're making horror films. You must be completely sincere. It is very difficult trying to stop people from laughing in the wrong place. But there are also wonderful opportunities to put in intentional laughs. And indeed, the tone of this movie has like some bits of humor, bits of like, I would say like gallows humor okay. uh, throughout the film. Jack Asher would return to shoot the film, uh, just as he had done Frankenstein and Dracula. Uh, Bernard Robinson came back to design the sets, um, which he had done for Frankenstein and Dracula. In fact, in many cases, he's redressing the sets from Dracula because they just finished shooting that. That makes sense. And Phil Leakey also comes back to do the makeup. Now, this would actually be Leakey's last film doing makeup for Hammer. Um, because he would resign in protest over the studio's decision to revoke his retainer. So the retainer would be that he's like on call to do movies? Yeah, he's on salary, essentially. Like the idea that like, even when he's not working, he's being paid and you're being paid so that you don't take jobs at other studios that would then mean that you'd have to turn down jobs from Hammer. So he's on retainer, right? And they... Stopped doing that as a cost-cutting measure, um, so he would only get paid, like, you know, for each movie then. And so he resigned, um, and instead his assistant Roy Ashton would step up for future Hammer Horror films after this one. Another notable behind-the-scenes change would be Leonard Salzito writing the score rather than James Bernard, who had scored the two previous films. Yeah, he also did, like, the Quatermass movies and stuff so that'll be an interesting change yeah so we got a new guy doing the music cushing would bring more of his own personal warmth to the role of victor frankenstein in order to reflect the character's transition to anti-hero like not not all the way to like van helsing levels of heroic <laughs> but you know just making him a little more likable his co-star francis matthews would later gain fame playing detective paul temple on the bbc series of that name from 1969 to 1971 
Our menaced young woman this time is played by 30-year-old London stage actress Eunice Gason, who today is probably best remembered as being James Bond's recurring girlfriend Sylvia Trench in the first two Bond films, uh, which makes her the very first Bond girl, uh, if you discount the 1954 TV version of Casino Royale. Uh, She's the gal at the Baccarat table at the start of Dr. No, who says... My name's Trench, Sylvia Trench, and you are Mr. And then Sean Connery introduces himself. The film's monster is played by two actors, Oscar Quitak before the operation Hmm. and Michael Gwynn after the operation. So The Revenge of Frankenstein was released by Columbia Pictures in the United States on a double bill with the re-edited Curse of the Demon on June 1st, 1958. In the UK, it was released on August 27th, 1958, um, as a just like a solo feature, I think. Um, but I, I will point out that was the day after Blood of the Vampire was released in the UK. Yeah. Critics at the time noted a lack of menace and a laid back feeling to the movie, which undercut its carefully constructed horror atmosphere. Um, critics noted that like the plot seemed very weak, not so much a story and more just like, here's kind of the next things that happened in Victor Frankenstein's life. <laughs> um, so a little episodic. Yeah. And, and kind of, um, without like a strong through line, um, the pacing and writing, uh, came under fire for these reasons, even though once again, Cushing's performance was praised. Um, However, today, The Revenge of Frankenstein is regarded highly as a classic in the Hammer Horror canon. Cool. So how are we watching this? Well, so Curse of Frankenstein and Horror of Dracula had been distributed by Warner Brothers Mm. in the U.S., but Revenge of Frankenstein had been pre-sold to Columbia. And it's these sorts of practices that are why you will never see a definitive Hammer box set in North America, or even like a box set of each individual series because they did this. They just sort of had them released by whoever in the U S. Um, so the film is available on a region free Blu-ray in the UK from indicator. And then in the U S it is available on DVD as part of Sony's hammer films collection, six film set. Um, and then on Blu-ray from Sony with curse of the mummy's tomb, which just is another, columbia distributed hammer film yeah that's that's a few years in the future hey indeed revenge of frankenstein can also be found online from itunes google play microsoft and youtube okay so that means that it will be on our youtube playlist which you can find at screamscenepodcast.com you're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we will discuss the revenge of frankenstein from 1958 directed by terence fisher see you on the other side everybody Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Revenge of Frankenstein from 1958, directed by Terrence Fisher. Sarah, what did you think? Definitely could feel the lack of momentum, Mm. but I wouldn't say that the pacing 
was off. It was just like, you know, you needed momentum. Mm. Yeah, I I certainly see what the one critic was talking about who said that it just sort of felt like the next thing that happens in Victor Frankenstein's life. Yeah, and nothing feels like out of place. No. Or out of left field. No. But it, it's just like... It all makes sense. Yeah. But it's not really about anything. Yeah. We'll dig into that more later, I suppose, but it would probably help some of our listeners to know what exactly does happen in this movie. So, Sarah, take it away. Uh, the revenge of Frankenstein is what happens, Ben. Does it, though? <laughs> From a certain point of view. A yeah, very metaphorical revenge. <laughs> uh, what's that saying? The best revenge is living well? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So we pick up right where Curse of Frankenstein left off. Frankenstein is being taken to the gallows and with him is, you know, the priest, as well as a hunchbacked man who we learn his name is Carl. Now, uh, kind of off screen as the camera is focused on the guillotine, the priest gets beheaded instead and Carl gets Frankenstein out of the jail. Three years later, we are in a town called Cowlsbrook, <laughs> and um, Frankenstein is now going by Dr. Stein. Still just, still Victor, though. Yeah. Victor Stein, not yeah. Victor von Frankenstein, Victor <laughs> Stein. Sort of like if you changed your name to, like, Sarah Chack. <laughs> uh, so he is practicing. No one will ever know. <laughs> So he is practicing medicine in this place and the uh, local medical council is getting upset because he keeps stealing, well, unintentionally stealing their patients, their wealthy lady patients to be specific. Now, one young member whose name is Dr. Hans Cleve recognizes Frankenstein and asks to join his work because he's on the search for knowledge. Dr. Stein has his private practice with all these young ladies. He also works at the local poor hospital, kind of like Dr. Jekyll style. Um, And he has his laboratory in a nearby old wine cellar. Um, And in that building, there's like the landlord and whatever. Now, it's uh, kind of shown how, how Dr. Stein is taking parts from poor people to be used for experiments. Uh, one such experiment we see has um, like a mechanical electrical brain, a severed hand, and a pair of eyes, all in like a nice glass tube. And the purpose of this experiment is to show that like the eyes see fire and they move the hand to react away from the fire. Um, and it's all just through this like mechanical electrical brain. But obviously the real human brain is a lot more complex than that. And he explains to Hans how he has made the perfect body and he shows Hans and it's like still made from dismembered parts of people, but the stitching is like really well done um, and he's like fully able-bodied. He doesn't look like a corpse. He doesn't. That's the key thing here. He does not look like a corpse. Basically, the plan is to put Carl's brain, that hunchback, um, put his brain into this perfect body. And that's why Carl rescued Frankenstein from the guillotine. Now, the medical council president has his daughter, Margaret, 
go to work at the hospital. There's some speculation on the part of Hans and Frankenstein that she's there to keep an eye on them, but Margaret doesn't show any of that. She in- seems to have a very like naive view of like what the hospital even does like, and what does. her work is there. Yeah. She's like, oh, I go out and buy things for people like tobacco and soap. And it's like, what are you doing here, Margaret? Yeah. Um, she wants to be like the common people. <laughs> and she's a young, pretty, wealthy lady. And Carl is immediately infatuated. Now, it's time for Carl's surgery, and it is relatively a success. Um, During the surgery and the electrification process, he does start flailing around like a wacky, waving, inflatable tube man. Mm. Reminiscent of the exorcist kind of flailing as well. Sure. Um, But, you know, they, they calm him down, and it's fine. Hans and Frankenstein take new Carl back to the hospital in a private room to recover. The hospital janitor does see them bring Carl in, so he does know that there's like this secret patient. Carl seems to be recovering fairly well, um, healing pretty well, but they have to keep him super calm, and part of that means fully restrained uh, in kind of talking to him to kind of exercise his brain. Hans tells Carl that like, yeah, so after you're all healed up, you're going to be like a medical phenomena and that we're going to like show you in front of like medical boards along with like your previous body that we have like in stasis. They've got it embalmed. Embalmed. That's the word. (laughs) And uh, he'll be like a medical marvel. And Carl's like, people have stared at me my entire life. I don't want this at all. So he devises a cunning plan to try to escape. Now, the janitor, whose name I didn't catch, it doesn't matter, um, is talking to Margaret and tells her about like this secret patient. And she's like, well, I don't believe you, but I better go take a look just in case. And she sees that it's um, not the Carl that she knew, but sees that it's a guy whose name happens to be Carl and that he is fairly nice and needs to be made comfortable. And he tells her that, like, my restraints are so tight. Oh, they hurt. And she's like, okay, I'll loosen them. Sorry about that, sir. Like, Margaret. 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 Did did you not get your orientation? Come no, on. she really didn't. <laughs> she showed up being like, so my dad says I have a job here now. And the doctors looked at her and were like, okay, fine, I guess. And then, like, walked away. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much how it goes. During that scene when she loosens the restraints, um, we get a little epiphany on the part of Dr. Hans. So he's talking to the janitor. Long story short, um, they have a chimpanzee in Dr. Frankenstein's laboratory who happens to eat meat. And Hans is like, well, that's weird because they're not supposed to eat meat. Chimpanzees, I do believe, will eat meat. They just prefer fruit. Yeah, like they, I think they can, they just generally don't yeah it's like deer deer eat meat yeah when it's like there yeah but you know but they don't go to like the local butcher yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) so hans asks frankenstein about that and he's like oh yeah so that chimpanzee was part of like a line of experiments that i did of putting like a reptile's brain into a frog's brain whatever and putting an orangutan brain into this chimpanzee you know, he got kind of agitated afterwards and it didn't heal properly and he became carnivorous. 
and not just carnivorous, but cannibalistic. Mm -hmm. He ate his monkey wife. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there's a fantastic line where Hans is like, well, how do you know? Like it was his wife, and he's like, "Well, who else would he be married to, <laughs> or something like it's, that?" It's he says that he, I forget the chimpanzee's name, but let's Otto. say Otto. Okay, so what Frankenstein says is, and then he ate Mrs. Otto, and Han says another chimpanzee, and then Frankenstein says, "Well, yes, who else would he be married to?" <laughs> Which is just, I, I did enjoy that, but yes, so. Hans is like, but did Carl know that there's a chance he could become cannibalistic? And Frankenstein's like, yeah, that's why he knows that, you know, the recovery process is so important. Cut to Carl breaking out of the hospital. Now, first things first, he heads to the laboratory to destroy his original body. And in the midst of doing this, the landlord uh, hears the commotion, comes downstairs and starts some fisticuffs with Carl. That includes a couple knocks to the head. Not great when you're trying to recover from brain surgery. So Carl loses it and kills that landlord um, and then runs off into the night. Now, he does have a moment of like suddenly craving meat kind of made clear. And he's like drooling like um, someone with like rabies a little bit. Next thing we see, he has made it to Margaret's stables because that's how rich she is. She gave him her address it doesn't matter. And so she tries to go get the doctors to help, but he's gone by the time she comes back. He does go and attack a teen girl and kills her. And it's implied in like a kind of a cannibalistic attack. And finally, during uh, a very special like high class dinner party, um, he breaks in and uh, sees Frankenstein and Hans and goes up to them and is like, help me, Frankenstein. Now, at this point, through the whole ordeal, um, being on the lamb and having these cannibalistic attacks, the disfigurements that original Carl had are coming into play in new Carl. So um, no hunchback, but kind of a, a lame arm and a... He has paralysis on one side, basically. Yeah, I think uh, they say that it's from a blood clot. So basically yes. from a stroke. Yeah, he has a, a blood clot in his brain that Frankenstein, it got brought up like, well, wouldn't the new body have that since it's part of like, because it's in the brain. And Frankenstein's like, oh, no, 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 no. Because once we take the brain out, like we can correct it during the surgery. So that's what happened. And I guess the implication is probably that like, you know, the blood clot came back with the brain damage. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's also becoming more and more like corpse-like, like gray skin, that sort of thing. Now, as he approaches Frankenstein and calls out his name, he dies. But it's a dinner party in front of like high-class Carlsbrook society. So everyone's like, Frankenstein? What? And it's a big hullabaloo. With Dr. Stein's reputation ruined... Um, everyone has left his practice. He goes into the hospital per usual and the poor patients beat him because they're like, stop experimenting on us. Hans does manage to pull them off of Frankenstein and he's like beaten to a pulp like he's near death. Dr. Frankenstein turns to Hans and is like, you know what you need to do? (laughs) And so Hans takes Frankenstein's brain out and puts it in a jar. 
just as the police break down the door looking for Dr. Frankenstein. And Hans is like, oh, he died from this attack from the patients. I tried to do surgery to save him, but alas. Now, there's been a second body in the making that, again, is made from the body parts of the uh, hospital patients. And so the brain gets put into that body. And then we cut to London, undetermined amount of time later, and we see a Dr. Frankenstein with a mustache practicing medicine. Dr. Frank, Sarah. Yeah, I was about to say, uh, he has his name played it and says Dr. Frank and with like a CK instead mm-hmm. of just a K. And um, yeah, he, he's practicing medicine in London with uh, Hans still by his side. The end. Yep. Um, and it was just so fucking comical. So the whole thing with the new, this new body is we see a pickpocket's arm have to be amputated and he has this tattoo on his forearm. And then we see that that tattooed forearm is on the new body and then on this new Frank, Dr. Frank. And so I'm like, oh, so clearly new body. Let's see what he looks like. And he looks up to the mirror and it's just Peter Cushing with a mustache. And I lost it. I just could not stop laughing. Yeah, it's kind of like, why would he make his getaway body look the same? Like, like the because he's been building it the whole movie and it's clearly been his like escape plan mm-hmm. this whole time. Because after his reputation is ruined, like no one's able to actually prove that he's Frankenstein, but he has to go defend himself to the medical council. And like, it's clear that the rumors have done their damage. And Hans is like, you, my, like my guy, we're fucked. And Frankenstein's like, no, 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 don't worry about it. Like I got this under control. He made this body knowing it was his getaway body. You'd think the point of it would be to look different because one of the things that gets brought up a lot in the movie, when characters like Hans figure out that he's Frankenstein is like, putting aside the fact that he didn't change his name all that much. Oh, well, Baron von Frankenstein like had a very distinctive appearance and you look <laughs> exactly like it. And it's like, that's true. Like Peter Cushing is a very recognizable dude to the point where like they had to give a guy like prosthetic makeup in Revenge of the Sith to look like him and stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, so you'd think he'd make the body look different is nope. the whole thing. But no, he makes it like look exactly like him like he had a choice and he chose it still looks like me wild decision so i guess we know how egotistical victor frankenstein is based on that yeah i will say cushing does a really good job of balancing the frankenstein that we know from curse and the new one that's supposed to be a bit more of an anti-hero yeah this is like again as we kind of said at the start everything in this movie makes sense. Like this makes sense as like the next things that he would do. It's like, okay, I want to continue my research. What I admire about this movie is it doesn't feel formulaic. Yeah. Frankenstein's not just out here like making a second creature where it's like, oh, this time it'll be perfect. He continues his research into like making bodies and there is a degree of like, well, we need to perfect that. But he's also like continuing his research and continuing new experiments on brains and like figuring out new things, right? It's not just like, let me do the same thing over, but this time we'll do it right. It's like, no, I can improve on that. Like we need a living brain. The brain can't be a dead brain and like these kinds of things. It feels like the next step in his work. It feels like a sensible answer to what he would do next. Um, The idea that like, okay, he sets up a very popular private practice Mm -hmm. so that he can make the money 
to work in the poor hospital and he works in the poor hospital so he can like amputate all these like random pickpockets and stuffs like body parts so he can use those to make the monsters you know what i mean yeah um it all makes a lot of sense and because of the way that the story is told with like oh he was saved from the gallows to help this hunchback and you know he works at the poor hospitals and stuff like he doesn't come off as evil yeah as before but he also doesn't come off as like a totally different person yeah it's not like um he's learned some humility obviously uh but he is he's been caught Mm -hmm. and so he knows to be a little bit more cautious this time yes he still has the same arrogance as before he has a great line that i think is pretty close to a line he has in curse about like these meddling women right (laughs) yeah he's still an asshole but like the plot doesn't give him the same um, like opportunities to be really heinous. Yes. Um, because it's this plot that's more about him trying to continue his research in these, you know, less than ideal conditions. And it focuses around like helping Carl. And so he's very sympathetic to Carl because he wants the experiment to proceed. You definitely get the feeling that he still doesn't really care about people as people. No, Carl is a medical experiment, and he's mad that Hans told Carl what he would be doing after, because... Don't you know how humans react, Hans? Exactly. Like, he he's still manipulative. Yeah. I really like his confrontation with the medical council near the start of the movie, where they're like, well, you have to join. And he's like, I don't know, man. Like, I showed up to this town, and you were all like, fuck you, you can't join. So I just did things by myself, and now I seem to be doing really well. So what do I need you guys for? Exactly. Um, Yeah, same guy, but the story is created in a way that he's more likable because he's less heinous. Yeah, and I will say that that works to the story's benefit but the horror movie's detriment. Yeah. Um, so this is a really great continuation of the story of Frankenstein. And I really like sequels that feel like they are continuations of the story and not just repeating the first movie. But this movie does show that there are weaknesses to that approach, which is that like you can forget that you're making a movie that the audience has certain expectations of. Mm -hmm. Like um, there's definitely a feeling here that the parts don't add up to a greater whole. For sure. I will say that um, we've seen, not necessarily on this podcast, but as people who watch movies, we've seen that kind of continuation of a story into different genres work really well. And I'm thinking of specifically alien than aliens. Right. Um, where one's a horror movie, one's an action movie. Mm -hmm. And I like both. Mm -hmm. I feel like you're leaning towards a different conclusion. I feel like Revenge of Frankenstein is still a horror movie based on its, like, intentions and stuff. But the lagging energy in this movie definitely means for me that I have a lower range. I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm just saying that, like, it's still a horror movie because, like, a lot of what they are doing in constructing certain scenes in constructing, like even the plot elements are still in the horror movie genre. Yeah. I totally agree with you that this is still a horror movie. It's just weak because the elements that you 
need to make a horror movie are weaker in this film because they aren't being focused on. Um, it's definitely weak in the terror department. Um, there are some decent moments of horror, if you kind of remember the distinction between those two things. But like one of the problems is none of the characters we care about are really ever under threat. Yeah. Like the character who's under threat for most of the movie is Frankenstein. And he's not under threat in like a horror movie kind of way. He's under threat of discovery. Mm -hmm. Um, Carl is the character who's sort of positioned as the new monster in this movie. And I will say, Dr. Frankenstein, please give me a deformed person, a new body to put my brain into is something we've seen in Frankenstein movies before from universal. It's not like a totally new idea. Um, but you know, he gets put in this body and it's a totally good looking body. It's super tall, but yeah, I feel like that would be like some getting used to, you know, yeah, especially cause he's very short as a hunchback. Yeah. I feel like it's, you know, when like, um, a teen goes through a mm. growth spurt and then they get like super clumsy cause they don't yeah. realize how long their arms are. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I feel like we should have had more scenes like that. So that's not like super horrific. And he gets banged up some, and that causes a increase in his violent tendencies. Um, but even then, like he kills the landlord, and he like attacks, you know, some a teen teenage, girl, yeah, who was like necking with like her, or rather not necking with her boyfriend at the park, mm-hmm. you know. And that's kind of it. He does smash in on the party, and Margaret's there. And that was the moment where I was thinking like, okay, so he's going to like go abduct Margaret and like run across some rooftops with a babe in his arms. Like, you know, Margaret was clearly here to be the, right. The woman we're going to threat and he's the monster and he's sort of become more monstrous as the movie goes on. Now, granted the movie then positions him just sort of getting his disfigurements from the stroke back as now he looks scary which is like a little problematic but that's what the movie's setting us up for and instead he dies he just kills over dead and he's not even here for margaret he like smashes in and then he's like ah frankenstein there you are help me and then he just sort of kills over and um after being a focal character for most of the movie after that, he's just like not important anymore. What's important is like my reputation. And Margaret also just completely vanishes from the story after that point, kind of just as suddenly as she arrived, which really lays bare the fact that she really only exists to be the like hot girl the hunchback falls in love with, which is like the yeah. hunchback trope in all of these movies, right? Yeah, I will say that um, Michael Gwynn as New Carl, uh, I think, did a really good job, Mm -hmm. um, both in terms of, like, the physical acting as the, like, stroke symptoms uh, came back. um, Or, like, early on when he's getting used to his new body. Yeah, he does a really good job, um, and he's also quite handsome, so... You were saying he looks like John Hurt if John Hurt was tall? Yeah, to me, he looks like if John Hurt was eight feet tall. But yeah, there's not really a sense that this story is about anything in the way that the first one was. Like, the first one was about how people in power abuse their power. And this one's just kind of like, and here's some stuff that happened. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I was thinking about this as well in the sense of the excitement that was in Horror of Dracula. Mm, yeah. um, 
just a lot of excitement uh, and not just because Dracula's jumping over tables. So I started thinking about this in relation to Curse, which, you know, is a bit more um, calm. It's, it's a bit more sedate compared to Horror of Dracula. Um, but it still manages to have that horror and the, the thrill to it. And I, I kept coming back to the fact that there's like no momentum because it is just stuff that happens yeah the horror in this movie is sort of being generated by things like look at this brain in a jar look at this severed hand like the kind Which are of all really well done yes yes and it's you know it's cool um but it feels like the lesson they learned was like oh people liked the gore in curse of frankenstein and that's what they like decided to replicate it's it's one of those th- tough things where you try to get away from the formula and tell a new kind of story, which this does. And I admire it, but you then risk losing what made people like your first movie for, Mm -hmm. right? Can you remind me how this did at the box office? This was successful enough that hammer kept making horror movies with Peter Cushing in them. But I don't think it was a huge smash hit because they don't make another Frankenstein movie until 1964. Okay. Yeah, when they were like putting Frankenstein's brain into another body, I was like, oh, did Cushing get too expensive? And then it's still just Cushing. Yeah, yeah. I do like that Jimmy Sangster like clearly learned his lesson and was like, all right, you know what? We're probably going to keep making these. So yeah, he, <laughs> he survives and he's in a new body. There, I, I don't have to come up with how he comes back next time. I've already done it. <laughs> I am very surprised at myself because when they said that, like, Carl could turn into, like, a meat-eating machine, I was like, oh, like, a zombie. Like, we're getting closer to George Romero zombies. Mm, sure. Um, And then we didn't see any of it we didn't even see the girl's wounds that he attacks yeah we just see him like drooling over the idea of eating meat yeah he grabs her and like pulls her off camera and she screams and i'm surprised at how disappointed i was to not see that yeah because you hate zombies i hate zombies and yes i know that in uh night of the living dead they're just eating like chicken but it looks like real meat because it's black and white and it fucks me up so i'm very surprised at my reaction Mm. but it's interesting that we're getting closer to where george romero will go sure yeah you're just sort of gradually developing a bloodlust uh where you're just like come on come on get me the gore i have the bloodlust i just don't have the meat lust (laughs) but let's move on to ranking for sure So as a reminder, Curse of Frankenstein is ranked at number 38. Um, And just for shits and giggles, Horror of Dracula is ranked at number six. Yes. And there are currently 229 movies on the list, which I know because when I looked for my range for this, I was thinking to myself like, yeah, this is fine, but I don't really feel any which way about it. It just sort of felt like, here's a movie. (laughs) Um, so I decided to look at like, what's the exact middle of the list these days? Sure. And that's number 114, Dead Men Walk. And I was like, this is definitely better than Dead Men Walk. Mm -hmm. Um, that's the one where George Zuko is both Dracula and Van Helsing. Yeah. 
Um, and above Dead Men Walk, there's other movies like The Ghoul and Beast with Five Fingers that I thought this was much better than. So I started like, you know, looking my way up and I saw the Monster Rally movies at 94, 95 and 96. And I was like, this is definitely better than all of those. They have a similar element to this of, mm-hmm. you know, Dr. Frankenstein swaps some brains around, which seemed to be like the main plot of all of those. But this is way better. Just for sure. Yeah. So looking up from those, um, I reached Quatermass 2 at 86. And I was like, you know, Quatermass 2 might be a better horror movie than this. Is that the one with the blog? Yes. It's the one where there's like the factory that the aliens are secretly running. And like the dude gets like horrifically burnt when he falls into like the vats or whatever. And right below Quatermass 2 is the thing that couldn't die which is the one about the farm where they dig up the like Spanish pirate's head or whatever. And he's like walking around and there's like the, the mom and like the two guys on the farm who like kill like people. Oh yeah. 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 Everybody's kind of a criminal for some um, reason. The one that has Charlie Brown in it, but that's the Spanish conquistador. Yeah. Yeah. This is, that's the conquistador. This is a different thing. Yeah. This is like a, a pie. Like, I know it was one of the guys on like the Lewis and Clark. It doesn't matter. That's the thing that couldn't die. Um, Above Quatermass 2 is Cult of the Cobra. So I felt like I was kind of in a better range here. So I made 87 my floor. Okay. Working my way up, I found Freaks at 78. And that was really interesting to me because the moment at the end when Frankenstein's in the poor hospital and all of his patients like sit up and get out of their beds and like kind of form a circle around him and he can't like escape and then they all just start beating the crap out of him had a very like the end of freaks feel to it Mm -hmm. but it wasn't as good as that yeah um that ending was pulled off much better so i made freaks my ceiling so my range here is 79 to 87 very interesting okay my spot was to just slot this in at number 79 at uh the devil commands so right below freaks because i also felt that with the ending as well as the fact that like it's not like freaks doesn't have that forward momentum but it has that feeling of two halves of a movie yeah and freaks also has that sort of feeling of like just being a story without really like making an effort to slot it into a particular genre Yeah, so I knew that this wouldn't go above Freaks, and the reason I thought to a place where The Devil Commands is, is uh, that's one of the Boris Karloff movies, and um, it has, like, supernatural elements and Mm -hmm. stuff, and it's definitely one of the more weaker of Mm -hmm. Karloff's Columbia movies, Mm -hmm. and I I just felt Revenge of Frankenstein was better. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Let's just fucking do that, then. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, number coming in at the new number 79, Below Freaks and Above the Devil Commands is The Revenge of Frankenstein from 1958, directed by Terrence Fisher. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our website. You can email us at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter, at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. 
You can subscribe to our show through our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review. And you can tell your friends about the show to help us grow our audience through word of mouth. If you have the means, you can also support the show by heading over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Your help uh, goes towards the time uh, that we put into making this show every week, um, the hosting fees, equipment, and it's just really, really appreciated uh, for all the work that we do to put on this show. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content, and all of our patrons get to vote in our monthly polls on what horror-adjacent movie we should do for our next bonus episode. And the latest poll is up and uh calling dr death appears to be leading that is the first inner sanctum mysteries movie. oh 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 <laughs> you sound so excited oh calling dr death uh if you want to take part in that poll head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast so ben what are we watching next week well next week sarah it's the return of roger corman sort of okay um as he is producing next week's film although he does not direct it um it's for aip it's called night of the blood beast fantastic we're really like stretching for these like night of the blank yeah titles yeah it's like well we've done vampire well what's a vampire but like a beast that feeds on blood i have no idea if it's a vampire (laughs) movie but uh, that's just what i thought of all right well we will see you then creatures of the night bye bye